Well, we are bringing our series on God's attributes to a close. Not today, but next week. So this morning is our last lesson, uh, I guess, studying the attributes proper next week. We're going to bring everything to a conclusion, sort of a concluding lesson, but we won't be distinctly looking at any one attribute next week. This is our last, our last such study. It's been about 15 weeks. This morning, we're turning our attention to God's truthfulness or His faithfulness. We've said throughout that attributes are descriptions of God. And we've wanted to be reminded regularly that God is not simply the sum of his attributes. The attributes aren't external to God. They're his very essence. And so even though we've gone through these things in a list-like fashion and we're looking at different aspects of the character of God, no attribute is more essential than any other attribute. Nothing is external to him. Everything we've said is core to his being as God. He may, in fact, emphasize certain attributes over others, but not because they're any more a part of him than any others. It's just how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Throughout, we've looked at attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness, which, you know, gets confusing because then we have lessons about goodness as its own attribute, and you see some of the problem that comes with trying to organize and systematize things like this. But nonetheless, greatness, those things that emphasize God's transcendence, the vastness of his greatness and his character in ways especially that he's unlike us. And then we look and have been looking for the last few couple of months at attributes of goodness. Those are attributes that emphasize God's perfections and how he deals with us. He's gracious, just, he's righteous and loving. This morning we're going to look at God as truthful or faithful. Those are overlapping interrelated terms, and so I'm going to use them somewhat interchangeably today. Sometimes theologians call this the veracity of God. And there's some logical connection here when we start to talk about God as true and God being truthful with his omniscience, because true implies that he knows all things as they really are. You may be thinking of when you study bibliology or the doctrine of scripture and things like inerrancy or infallibility that God's words are true, that they're without error, that they present things as they really are. And that, of course, related to this, there's a logical connection between those things. But really what we're going to look at this morning, and some of this is very simple and straightforward. God is true, God speaks truth, and God is trustworthy. And I presume that, that none of you are surprised by that, not surprised by those statements, but as simple as those declarations are, I think they invite us, at least this morning, to freshly consider the importance of belief as it relates to God as true and trustworthy. Faith and belief are the essence of Christianity, right? We call one another believers, right? Which implies what? That we believe something together that makes a difference in how we live. Agreed? So belief is essential. Faith, trust, essential to what it means to be a Christian. And of course, as we know that your faith is only as good as its object, then to consider God as true and trustworthy and dependable is to remind ourselves of the one in whom we believe. 
what it is that we believe. It's interesting, as I said, just the way that belief becomes so uh, discussed, so integrally with what it is to be a Christian. Christians are called believers. Jesus in his high priestly prayer refers to you and me as those who believe in me through their word. He's referring to the apostles who are going to carry the gospel forth. You and I are those who believe in the apostles' word. Believers. Minded no one can be saved apart from believing the gospel. Remember Jesus' words to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? And then he says this, blessed are they who did not say, see and yet believed. John 20, verse 30, the purpose of his writing. Many other signs, he says, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Believe the truth. You may have life in his name by believing the truth about him. What he says. Paul, I find very interesting in 2 Thessalonians, in two places, helps us see the distinction and how important belief is. He refers to Christians in a unique way and talks about Christians on the day that the Lord returns in a unique way. He says Christians or believers will be given relief, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 10, he says that uh, that's the day when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And then he makes this statement, for our testimony to you was believed. The gospel was believed and therefore those who will meet the Lord are those who have believed. That belief being carried through, through life will ultimately culminate in a marveling at the returning Lord Jesus. That's in contrast to those who do not obey the gospel. Same chapter, verse eight. Those who do not obey the gospel. Later in the same book, he talks about those who when they meet the Lord will meet destruction as those who do not accept the love of the truth. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 10. They believe what is false, verse 11. Verse 12, those who are judged are those who did not believe the truth. Why start there? These are all very obvious things. Because as we consider God as true and trustworthy or faithful, we need to be reminded of the central dominating theme of the Christian life, which is belief, faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Your entire life as a Christian, I most said as a believer, is dominated by belief, by faith, and the veracity of what it is you believe. When we go astray, sometimes disobedience is called unbelief. We've refused to believe the truth. 
We've refused to believe God's true words and to order our lives in accordance with them. So as we consider God being true, God being truthful, God being faithful, we do well to remember that these things are critical because our eternity is staked on believing the truth. Just a few definitions there that get at the different aspects of what it means to say God is truthful or God is faithful. Grudem helpfully lays out the different aspects. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God, that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. Similarly, A.W. Pink says God is true. His word of promise is sure. So he's true just in himself. Then his promises, of course, are true because God is true. Relations with his people, God is faithful. He's dependable. He may be safely relied upon. And then much more slightly longer, Bavink. He is the real, the true God in contrast to false gods. The idols, which are vanities, and as such, he will always stand by his words and promises and prove them true so that he will be seen as completely trustworthy. He's not a human that he should lie or change his mind. All that proceeds from him bears the stamp of truthfulness. So God is true. He is himself the only true God. Then his words, his actions are true. His statements that we stake our lives on about everything conform ultimately to reality as they conform to himself. And then he's trustworthy. He always acts in accordance with that truth and he's trustworthy to his promises and to his word for God's people. And so we're gonna look at all those different things as declarations in scripture. God is the true God. God speaks the truth. He reveals himself as he truly is. And God is faithful. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. He ultimately proves true. And we just wanna see the, and be reminded of these essential things that ultimately our lives are hinged on, that God is true and that we've believed the truth. So God is the true God. Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah 10, verses six through 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name in might who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. You hear the contrast that he's going to be making between the true God and false gods, idols. Beaten silver is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith, violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men, so idols that men make, a creation from creatures. But, verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Much of our Old Testament 
declares God as true over and against the vanity of false idols. And sometimes we can lose a little bit of the poignancy of those declarations because we don't see at least the most base forms of idolatry all around us. But it was very common in the context in which these words were written. And so we do well to be reminded by them. God stands as true over and against all other false gods. Men, and in some places of the world, this is still happening, but make little statues and gods of their own creation that are lower case, you know, G, gods. Not really true gods, but the true God, the testimony of Scripture is over and against and alongside these false gods, he is true. He can be believed. He can be counted upon. He does act in ways that matter, unlike the dumb idols that can't do anything except be manipulated. This is even how the conversion of the Thessalonians is referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. The report that came back to Paul about the reception that the gospel had in Thessalonica was that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. Their conversion is described as they turned to serve a living and true God. Again, it's interesting. We are so accustomed to this language that even as I read that, I, I think you're probably sitting there going, is he really just pointing out for us this morning that we serve a living and true God rather than a false God? Yes, that's it. Be reminded of that. That's the testimony of Scripture. Their conversion was a turning from false idols to serve the living and true God. God is true. The testimony of Scripture is that He's the true God. We can be confident in that. Now there's some circularity here, and we understand that, right? How do we know that God is the true God? Because He Himself says that He's the true God. Well, is that a problem for us? Well, who else but the ultimate standard of truth can say that He's true? Of course it's circular. God is the ultimate authority and the ultimate standard of truth. He's not measured against anything other than Himself. His words are measured against himself. And he has said, I'm the true God. Believe me. God is true. 1 John 5, 20. It's how important it is that we recognize that believing the gospel, believing the truth about God's son is to believe the truth about the true God. And be in relationship with the true God. Again, as opposed to all other options out there. All other options that would result ultimately in condemnation rather than eternal life. John says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We're reminded by those words that eternal life comes, of course, from believing the truth. And he himself is true. We have been given understanding that we may know him who is true. Then we may yield our lives to the truth. Stake our eternal Residence, as Tanner is going to preach to us, on the reality that we believe the truth and that we know him who is true.
Belief is such a, a common thing in our world. I mean, you see billboards that just say, believe, right? Have you seen these? They're like the old uh, motivational posters, you know, believe. And somebody's hanging by, you know, off a cliff by their three fingers. And it just says something like, believe. Believe what? Um, believe that you can hang off this cliff. Believe that you can conquer anything. Believe, and it's this abstract idea. It's, it's the most manufactured motivation in professional sports, right? No one believed in us. No one believed in me. Although I'm making hundreds of millions of dollars to play this game, no one believed in me, right? It's silly. It's manufactured. Our, our own beloved tight end made that clear after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, even though everybody picked them to, to win at the beginning of the year. Nobody believed in us. There was no one out there who believed, right? It's manufactured. But what's it mean to believe in an athlete? After a good performance, sometimes they say, well, I just believed. I believed in myself. I had belief. When tragedies strike our culture, you see this thoughts and prayers. Everyone says, I'm praying. Who? To who? I'm thankful and blessed. You, you'll see that after something is done. Well, from whom? By whom? Belief in the truth separates Christians from all of that. In your essential identity as a believer, you believe the true God. You respond to the true God's words. You have eternal life because Jesus Christ is true because the gospel is true, because God has made promises staked on the truth of what he did and the significance of what he did. We don't just believe in the abstract. We believe the truth from the true God. And so it's important for us to remember that. We believe him who is true and our eternal life is staked on that. So it is a big deal to say something that in our context at Mission Road Bible Church sounds so simple and assumed, that God is true and the true God. But the scriptures declare that, and we need to be reminded that that is what we believe. Secondly, God speaks the truth. God speaks the truth. He reveals himself as he truly is and thinks. He's the standard of truth, as Grudem defines and he speaks the truth. And of course, we could find so many Bible verses that say that, and we're not going to camp here very long at all. Jesus himself, most notably, maybe most well-known to us in the high priestly prayer again, sanctify them, he prays to the Father. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And again, logically, we understand this. God is true, therefore his word is true. And if his word is truly God's words, then it's going to be free from error and reliable and dependable or infallible. And we understand that overlap. But again, we shouldn't read too quickly past these declarations. His word is truth. Everything God's word speaks of, it speaks of in accordance with himself, his truth. He reveals things as they really are. Think about just the implication of this in our world when things basic to very human nature in accordance with God's created purposes are being questioned. God's word reveals things as they really are. 
Homosexuality is a perversion and a sin, contrary to anything that says otherwise, because God's word says it is. It reveals things as they really are. Gender is not a choice. It's a part of how God made us in his image. How do we know that? Because he said so, and his word is true. There are countless other examples. Those are just constantly around us and get our attention. God speaks the truth. His word is free from error in those things that it asserts, and it reveals how he really thinks and how things really are. True reality. There is a standard, an authoritative standard, and it's God's word. He speaks the truth because he himself is true. And in fact, Scripture tells us that because he himself is true, he can't not speak the truth. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie in regard to those things that he has promised. The longer section helps us see that faithfulness is in view and the carrying out of God's promises and the confidence that we, sh- we can have. And then this assertion that it's impossible for God to lie is actually to engender our confidence in the fact that he speaks the truth. For when God made the promise to Abraham, Hebrews 6.13, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. <laughs> What's the ultimate s- something that could be sworn by in order to uphold the truth? Well, God can't swear by anything greater than himself. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. You hear the connection between our hope and our encouragement in things promised but not yet obtained and the connection with that God, it's impossible for him to lie. He speaks the truth. We can be confident in his promises, not only because he's dependable, as we will go on to say, a C, but because he is, he can't lie. He speaks the truth. All right, God is trustworthy. Next, this is mostly what we think about when we think about God's faithfulness. God is trustworthy. He proves true. He's reliable. When we say God is faithful, that's what we mean. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He will be proven true in the carrying out of his providence and in his purposes as he fulfills his promises. I just want to make a note about what faithfulness isn't. Sometimes we say God is faithful, but we may not actually mean God is dependable in the way that Scripture means that. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we allow our own desires, our own expectations, maybe our own hopes and dreams as believers to be the thing we're clinging to, and then we'll say, well, God is faithful. I know I'll have this because God is faithful. 
But that has to be adjusted. God is faithful to himself, to his word, to his promises, and therefore to those who believe in him in accordance with those promises. God is faithful. Anything in his word that he has promised for those who are his children will surely come to pass. Depend on it. But that's different than when we zoom in too close and unmet expectations, challenges, things that we face. And sometimes we want to be faithful in our response. And so we say, well, God is faithful. What we may mean by that is God is faithful. I'll end up getting what I want. I just need to wait. But that's not exactly what scripture teaches. If the thing you want is something that God has promised, then of course, that is exactly what it means. But we need to be careful about when we say God is faithful as a sort of a summary catch-all statement to help us endure that we actually have the right picture biblically of what it means that God is faithful. We're motivated to press on in the Christian life by God's faithfulness, clearly. That's going to be our, one of our main takeaways. Depend upon our utterly dependable God to fulfill his promises. But we need to remember what those promises are. And when we press into the specifics of our life and sometimes unmet expectations, desires, things we want to come to pass, those things may come to pass or they may not. But that is no change on God's faithfulness, right? When scripture lays out God's promises and his faithfulness, what is mainly in focus is ultimate things. Ultimate things in the fulfillment of his promises. And, some, and surely God is faithful in, in the care of his children. The scriptures portray that. But even that is a fulfillment of his promise to never leave nor forsake. But not necessarily God is faithful in our definition. He's trustworthy to give me the things that I desire. He's trustworthy to give me this outcome just because I'm a Christian and I expect it to be this way. That's not the standard by which God's faithfulness is judged. We need to be careful about that. Right? Sometimes it's easy to say, you know, well, I don't have this thing yet, but I will. God is faithful. Well, what is that thing? Is it eternal life? Right? Is it meeting Christ? Is it steadfast faith? Is it endurance in the face of persecutions? Or is it this job that I really want that I don't have? Those are different. God's word certainly has something to say about how we think about the job that we don't have that we want. But his faithfulness is not dependent on whether or not he gives you some specific outcome that you desire, other than the things, of course, the outcomes that he has promised in his sure and true word. So with that in mind, listen to Flavel's definition of faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is his sincerity, firmness, and constancy in performing his word to his people in all times and cases. It's his constancy in performing his word. You can look at, there's so many verses that declare God's faithfulness. I want to zero in on just a couple. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. It's encouraging as it refers to the characteristics of our Messiah. 
the Lord Jesus, referred to by Isaiah in 11.1 as a shoot from the stem of Jesse, this branch from his roots. But the Messiah, Isaiah writes, of him, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And he goes on to say all these wonderful truths about the Messiah. And you come to verse five. These are the things that will characterize the Messiah. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. He'll be characterized by faithfulness, by trustworthiness, both in how the Messiah we saw played out in his life and how he responded to God the Father with utter faithfulness to his mission, but also how he's faithful to his followers. He is dependable. Ultimately, we can count on him. Similarly, look at Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65, 16 calls God the God of truth. The God of truth. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. The God of truth. And then if you look over at Revelation 3.14, so in Isaiah 65, there's an eschatological context or a future and end times context, a last things context. And in Revelation 3.14, referring to Christ, to to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, the amen, that term comes from this idea of this truth, the, the may it be, the, the, the guarantor. It's, it's related to this idea of truth, the God of truth, the amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, Christ is the amen. He's the faithful and the true He's the guarantor and executor of God's purposes and God's plans and the, the ultimate period, if you will, the final bookend, the amen. And that term, again, related to the Old Testament term for truth or faithfulness, the God of truth, the amen. He's dependable. He will prove true. And then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Just an example of a prayer related to what I was just saying about our conception of, of faithfulness. When we say this, what are we referring to? The end of his letter to, or his first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul says this, verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you, you can see the horizon for Paul's prayer here. It's ultimate, right? He's praying that God will ultimately bring his saving purposes to completion in the life of those who have believed when they meet Christ. Then he says this, faithful, verse 24, is he who calls you. God is faithful to do these things that Paul just prayed for because he has said he will do them. He's promised this for believers, that you will be sanctified entirely. 
and that he will preserve believers ultimately to stand blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. He asserts, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. The, the completion of what Paul prays for is ultimately staked on God's dependability, God's trustworthiness. But you notice that that prayer, again, that's for an ultimate reality. Think of the context. The context here, these believers are facing persecutions, sufferings, their faith has been shaken. Paul's prayer is not simply that their circumstances change. I'm sure he desired that. There's other places where Paul talks about the desire for circumstances to change. Circumstances that will allow for the furtherance of the gospel and such things. But here when he prays, he's praying for this ultimate completion of what God has said will happen. God is faithful to bring about the completion of his purposes for believers. Not simply a change, right? Some notion of God's faithfulness that says that that's measured by whether or not he gives us temporal relief or an immediate response, something we want change. No, Paul's view is, is a further horizon. It's an ultimate view. He points to the faithfulness of God for these believers in bringing them to their appointed end in accomplishing or as God accomplishes his purposes. So God is dependable. God is reliable. And his word says that throughout. There are some demonstrations of this in your Bibles, and there are more than this. I just put these here to remember just one thing. We're not going to look at these. We, it's not our purpose this morning, but I did want you to think about this. Not only does God declare that he's faithful, that he's reliable, that he's true, that he's trustworthy, that he speaks the truth, but it's demonstrated throughout the pages of Scripture. And the, the importance of God's people being reminded of his past demonstrations of faithfulness is articulated for us in Scripture. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. As we see examples of God's faithfulness, it encourages us to have hope in the faithfulness of God. Abraham waited a long time for the completion and the fulfillment of God's promise to give him Isaac. God was faithful in delivering his people in the Exodus. He was faithful when he brought them back from the exile. You think of all the messianic promises and how God was faithful to send the Messiah. Think about the establishment and the perseverance of the church, of us. I will build my church, Christ said. And we have seen that for the last 2,000 years. The gospel has gone forth. People are being saved. Disciples are being made. The church is being built as he promised. He's faithful. And we should look at the demonstrations of his faithfulness and be encouraged. How do we apply this? What are some ways to apply this? One, believe the only true God in his true words. What do I mean by that? I, I, I don't simply mean if you haven't responded to the gospel, but of course I do mean that. But I have in mind more believers, Christians. Your life of belief does not stop at the moment of conversion. It just begins. The Great Commission was disciples being made, and essential in that mission is what? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded is what Christ says. Belief includes 
observing, obeying what Christ commanded his people. That's why again, Romans chapter one, verse five, Paul says his mission is to bring about the obedience of faith. He pairs belief and obedience right there in explaining the way that his mission is being extended or the gospel was being taken to the Gentiles. To be a disciple is not simply to believe the gospel, but to believe all Christ has commanded in obedience of the gospel. It's not a decision that's made and then that's it. We, again, we walk by faith and not by sight. The obedience of faith is a regular yielding and submission because you believe that what God says is true. You believe that the way he said we are to order our lives as his children is right and is good and is best. The obedience of faith. We believe what God says about everything as it really is. Believe him in his true words. Secondly, be trustworthy as our heavenly father is trustworthy. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. You can look up these verses. Godliness is God-likeness. God is trustworthy. So should his children be. Scriptures tell us not to lie, not to speak in falsehood. Tells us, 1 Corinthians 4, that we're stewards. Paul's talking about his ministry. He says, I'm a steward, and it must be true of stewards that we be found faithful. Pursue faithfulness because God is faithful. Be dependable. Be trustworthy. That's godliness. God-likeness. Christ-likeness. And lastly, just depend upon our utterly dependable God to fulfill his promises. And then borrowing a phrase from John Flavel, and enter the chamber of rest through reflection on his promises. Do you go and read the promises of God for believers in times of difficulty and find rest in those? Rest in the dependability and truth of God by remembering in times of difficulty, in times of doubt, in times of weak faith, that God is faithful and dependable. Of course, Lamentations 3.23 is a favorite for everyone. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. The context of Lamentations makes that so, so poignant as we think about what it means for Jeremiah in that Lamentation to say God is faithful as he's just seen Jerusalem absolutely decimated in fulfillment of God's promises. And he clings to the, also the promise that God will restore his people. Look at 2 Timothy 1.12. This will be the last place, and then we'll end. Paul, likely nearing the end of his life, not merely the end of his ministry, Verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, he's not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, but he has suffered for the gospel. Verse 12, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Why, Paul? You, you are charged to carry out this ministry, and clearly from a human perspective, you're in prison and you're probably about to die. You have opponents and enemies. You've been deserted by your friends in some ways. You've seen opposition everywhere. He says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard 
what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul's confidence was the dependability of God. Paul believed that God was utterly trustworthy, that God was dependable and faithful to carry out the things that he's promised. And his life was staked on that dependability. And that's why he had hope. That's why he wasn't ashamed. Not his circumstances, not the hope of immediate or temporal relief, although that could have come, but because he knows whom he has believed. And he was convinced that the one he believed in was able to guard what he had entrusted to him, his life, his very life. So depend upon the utterly dependable God. Be encouraged by looking back to the promises of Scripture and steal your heart in times of challenge and uncertainty by being reminded that God is dependable. Look at what he's promised. Trust him. He is true. He speaks the truth. And he will do the truth. He will carry it out. He's dependable to do such. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminders of your word. The reminders that we need, that we fail to appropriate in our lives when we're struggling or even when we're not. You have made sure promises and you are dependable. You call us to trust you. You invite us to trust you. You even put our lack of trust to the test in your word. Help us to see the wonder of your promises and to be confident in you, whom we have believed, to bring about the fulfillment of our eternal life, to bring about the completion of the work of salvation that you've given to us, that you've chosen us for, that you've called us for, that you're bringing about in our lives and that ultimately you will see through to completion when we stand before you finally prepared to enjoy all of eternity with you as you're proven to be utterly faithful to your children. We pray all these things in our Savior's name that is true. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>